This sermon was preached by Peter Nakotra, head pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Woodhaven, Queens. Grace Baptist was planted in 2001 and is seeking to reach South Queens and North Brooklyn with the gospel. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.gbcny.org. Please feel free to distribute the sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. In the 16th century, the Lord raised up a man named William Tyndale uh, to be an integral part, really, of the Protestant Reformation. He was a very gifted individual, he was a gifted linguist, actually, who could speak eight languages fluently, which two of them being Greek and Hebrew. And he published many religious papers that the Roman Catholic Church deemed heretical, and later on, the Church of England deemed heretical as well. So he went to Germany uh, to translate and write uh, the New Testament in English. Uh, but in his first attempt to actually print it, soldiers from the uh, Roman Catholic Church came and they raided the print shop. So Tyndale fled with all of his transcripts and went to another place in Germany called Worms. Uh, and there he printed his New Testament translation in 1525 and 26. And copies of that were smuggled into England, where what would happen then, there was a, uh, a death warrant out for, uh, for, for him. And so he fled. Now he fled to Antwerp where he stayed in hiding for about 10 years. Uh, and while he was there, he would complete his translation of the whole English Bible, uh, New Testament and Old. Well, a young Englishman named Henry Phillips beguiled his way into a closed society that Tyndale was in. And he pretended to be Tyndale's friend. And he pretended to take great interest in Tyndale's writings. And he persuaded Tyndale that he was really a sincere and a trustworthy friend. But one night... When he was to meet Tyndale for dinner, uh, he alerted the authorities in Brussels as to where Tyndale would be going to dinner that night. And while on his way to meet Phillips for dinner, Tyndale was arrested, and 16 months later, he was burned at the stake. Well, betrayal is never easy. It's never easy because when it comes, it comes from someone who is close to you. And, and, and you never saw it coming. A friend, an associate, a relative. The greatest betrayal of all time, though, is, of course, Judas's betrayal of Jesus Christ. Even though Jesus knew who would betray him, even though Judas knew when he, uh, Jesus knew when he would be betrayed, it must have still been hard for Jesus in his humanity, right? That one who he had loved, that one who he had spent at least three years of his life with, would actually sell him out to those who hated him. That one who he made, one of his apostles, would actually deliver him up to death. Well, in the 26th chapter of Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples uh, that when the Passover came, uh, which would come in two days, that he would be delivered up and that he would die in Jerusalem. And then we see Jesus eating a meal with his disciples at Simon the leper's house, where Mary anoints Jesus' body with a very expensive oil for burial, uh, and she does so out of worship and love and devotion to Jesus. At which time Judas complains, why this waste of such expensive oil? I mean, it could have been sold for thousands upon thousands of dollars and given to the poor. And the other apostles, well, they agree with him. But Judas, Jesus defends Mary, mildly rebukes Judas, who really could care less about the poor, because truthfully, as we see in Scripture, all he really cares about is lining his pockets with money, and i.e. the money from the oil he would hope. 
And that's because the Scriptures tell us that he was a thief. Well, once he is exposed by Jesus, Judas goes to the chief priest and he cuts a deal with the chief priest or the Sanhedrin to deliver Jesus up quietly, right, without any fanfare during the, the Passover feast. And he does it for 30 pieces of silver. And now in verses 17 to 25, we come to the actual day of the Passover. And I'd like to look at these verses using a very simple two-point outline. And the outline would be on the back of your bulletin. Jesus reveals where to prepare, and Jesus reveals a betrayer. And let's read again verses 17 to 19. He reveals where to prepare. Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into a city, into the city of a, to a certain man, and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. So it's Thursday morning. The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread starts at sundown. Uh, and this will effectively be the last Passover of the Old Covenant. Now, as we said previously, the Passover remembers Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt and their rescue from the judgment of God. Right? The Passover actually was the central act of redemption in all of the Old Testament. But it's actually pointing to the once and forever greater Passover, which will have its fulfillment in the crucifixion and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 5-7, For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So this Passover will be, will be the one that every other Passover was picturing, and, and, and this will be the one that, in effect, the Lamb of God will be sacrificed. And His blood will be placed around the doorpost of men's hearts. And they will be covered, covered from the judgment of their sins. And divine justice will pass over them, and they will be freed from the slavery of sin, and they will come out of the kingdom of darkness. All pictured in, right, the Passover uh, in Egypt, when God brought His people out of Egypt. Well, Luke 22.15, in there, Jesus says to His disciples, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And He greatly desired to... to, to uh, eat this Passover, probably for many reasons, but one big one is that he wanted them to understand that he was the fulfillment of what the Passover pictured. He wanted them to eventually grasp the connection between the original, original Passover lambs uh, and all of their blood, uh, the, the first one's blood that was protecting the people from physical death, to the blood of Jesus, which would protect his people from an eternal death. How every aspect of the Passover meal with all of its detailed sequences all points to him and his work of redemption for the sake of sinners. Add to that, he wanted them to know that every aspect of all the events was under divine control and working all on God's timetable. That in no way, and we see this throughout 26, that in no way was Jesus a victim. In no way was he taken by surprise. Right? In fact, in the end, he's a conqueror. So it's Thursday morning, his apostles ask him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And listen, every good Jew ate the Passover meal. Right? And there was much preparation involved in the Passover meal. Like, you had to go and select your lamb. And then you had to have it killed at the temple between 3 and 5 p.m. Right? You had to buy unleavened bread, bitter herbs, wine, and other details like that. And then you had to cleanse your house or your eating area of all the leaven that would be in it. 
And then you had to roast the lamb. The meal itself had to be eaten by at least 10 people, but no more than 20. The reason being is you had to finish the lamb. You couldn't leave any of it around. It had to be fully eaten that night. And Mark tells us that Jesus sends out two apostles to go and do this task. And Luke actually tells us who they are. Luke tells us they're Peter and John. And the reason he sends out two is because only two people were allowed to go to the temple and have the lamb killed or slain. Well, it's about 12 hours away and the apostles, they want to know where they're going to eat the Passover with Jesus. And Jesus doesn't tell them specifically where. Instead, he adds this whole air of mystery as to where they're going to eat the Passover meal. And he says, go into the city, which of course is Jerusalem, and they would have gotten that, which is where the Passover meal must be celebrated. Now you need to know this. You need to know that Jerusalem was extremely crowded during the Passover. Probably up to five times the amount of people would have been in Jerusalem during the Passover time. So instead of 500,000, there probably would have been close to, as Josephus tells us, about two and a half million people would have been there that week. So Jesus says, go into Jerusalem and you will find a certain man. And Luke gives us more details on this certain man. Luke tells us in Luke 22.10, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him to the house which he enters. And then we read in verses 11 and 12, Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large, a large furnished upper room. There make ready. Now it seems, seems to us like a shot in the dark, does it not? Almost far-fetched. I mean, I mean, you know, there are a couple of million people in Jerusalem. And since no one has indoor plumbing, odds are quite a few people are carrying around pitchers of water. Right? To us, it sounds like somebody's saying, go into Manhattan, look for a guy wearing a suit and carrying a briefcase. Or, go into Woodhaven and you will meet a man on a bike delivering food. Right? I mean, there are lots of guys wearing suits, carrying briefcases, and there are lots of guys on bikes delivering food. So it's kind of like, what kind of clues are these? And in the first century, there were lots of people carrying around water pitchers from their well to their homes. So it doesn't seem like a good clue to us. But it's a great clue. And here's why. Because men did not carry water pitchers in that culture. That was woman's job. The women carried the water pitchers in that culture. It was a woman's job to go to the well and fetch the water. Remember the, the woman at the well in John 4? She was getting the water. Even way back when Abraham sends, sends, sends his, his assistant uh, to go and find a wife for his son, right? What is, what is Rebecca doing? She's getting water for the animals. So it would be very unusual to see a man carrying a water pitcher. And you could easily spot that, even amongst the crowd of people. It would be someone saying something like this in our day today. Someone saying, go into Brooklyn and look for a woman breaking up the street with a hundred pound jackhammer. Odds are, if you see a woman with a jack jackhammer that's a hundred pounds, she's the one. Odds are. Right? Well, Peter and John go into Jerusalem. They meet a man carrying a water pitcher. They follow him. They ask the owner of the house uh, to let Jesus, the teacher, use a finished upper room, uh, furnished with all stuff for them for the Passover. And now the question is, who is this man? And the answer is, we don't know. We don't know because Jesus doesn't name him. 
Uh, now, does Jesus know him? And I would say, yes, he does. I believe he does. And I would also say uh, that he's probably of a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus may have prearranged all of this with him. And I think so, because in chapter 26, verse 18, Jesus says, tell the man that Jesus said his time is at hand. And that means it's time for me to go to the cross. Right? It is, it is now the appointed time for him to suffer for the sins of his people. Now the scriptures will be fulfilled concerning the redemption of men. And it's interesting because throughout the Gospels, either Jesus himself or the Gospel writers would often say, it's not his time. His time is not yet. Right? Which is why he, he couldn't be killed or taken by the Jews or by the authorities. It wasn't his time. But now it is his time. Now it is his time. And the mystery man knew enough to know that Jesus needed his place because Jesus was completing his mission. He knew enough to know that. Now, the big question is, why all this secrecy? Why this, this look for the guy carrying the pitcher and ask the place that he goes to? Why? Why not just name the man with the water pitcher? Or better yet, just tell me who owns the house. Why not give Peter and John the address and say, go to this place, just make it simple for Peter and John. Why? Here's why he doesn't do that. Because Judas had already cut a deal with the Jewish leaders to quietly hand Jesus over to them. Right? And in Matthew 26, 16, right, uh, says that once Judas got his 30 pieces of silver, from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Right? Jesus knows that. And if Judas knew where the Passover meal would be, he would tell the Jewish leaders. And they would arrest Jesus probably at the start of the meal. Uh, and Jesus would not have been able to institute the Lord's table, right? a perpetual reminder of his death and resurrection. And he would not have been able to deliver the upper room discourse uh, to his disciples, which they need and which all men need. In other words, we wouldn't have John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 in our Bibles. They just wouldn't be there. So then Jesus, knowing what Judas would do, sends Peter and John to prepare the Passover meal, even though they don't know where they're going. And they go. And they prepare the Passover meal. And they stay there. And probably at the last possible moment, moment Jesus will go there with the other ten, ten apostles. Which would not allow Jewish, uh, Judas an opportunity to alert the Jewish leaders to where Jesus would be. And I just love now verse 19. I love verse 19. I mean, it's, it really is, it, it just rivets me. We read there, So the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. They don't know where they're going. They don't know who the owner of the house is. They really have no clue. And there's this massive confusion on all of this, but in the end of the day, they just do what Jesus tells them to do. They just do what he tells them to do. They don't have the answers. Right? They don't have even understanding here. Jesus just said, do something, and guess what? They obeyed him. They obeyed him. It's like after the feeding of the 5,000 men plus women and children, somewhere in 20,000 20, people. And, and the people want to make Jesus a, an earthly king. And Jesus squashes that right away. And he, he tells the people, he goes, he tells the people to go. Right? And then he himself tells his disciples, go in a boat and go to the other side. I'll see you there later. As he goes to pray. Now, you know the story. There was a terrible storm. And, 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 and the waves are, 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 are contrary to, the, to the, the apostles. But they're in the boat, and they're rowing, and they're rowing, and they get stuck. They can't go anywhere, but they never go back. You know why they don't go back? Because Jesus said, go to the other side. 
And they don't know how they're going to get there, but they just obey him. He said to do something, and even though the weather's not cooperating, they're just obeying him. And is this not what the Christian life calls for? Is it not? Right? Is it not what genuine faith looks like? Right? He wants us to trust him. He wants us to obey him, even if it seems hard. Even if it seems contrary to our own reason, what doesn't make sense to us at times. He wants us to follow him. And as our Lord, he wants us to do what he says for us to do. Because what he says is always good. And so I know it's a little throwaway in the verse here, but they just did it, even though they didn't know like, what they were doing. So he reveals where to prepare. Secondly, he reveals the betrayer. And this is the heart of the matter, in verses 20 to 25. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each one of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, You have said it. Well, it's evening. Jesus is sitting and eating the Passover meal with his apostles. Uh, and there was a very specific order to how this Passover meal went. Um, just so you get the, the background of all of this. started with the host, who in this case would be Jesus. He recites a prayer over the first cup of wine. Uh, and there were four cups of wine that they would drink during this meal. Uh, then the host would wash his hands. It was ceremonial washing. Uh, then they, uh, that would be followed by uh, the first dipping of bread into a mixture of bitter herbs and salt and apples and nuts and stuff like that. And then the host would pass around that bread around the table. Then the youngest person sitting around the table uh, would ask, what is the reason for the Passover? And the host would, would explain it so they would never forget. The host would explain the, the reason for the Passover. Um, uh, and that would be followed uh, by the drinking of the, the second cup of wine. Then the host would wash his hands yet again, again ceremonial, uh, and he would bless the bread uh, with two prayers of thanksgiving. Then he would break the bread and dip it into the, the, the lamb dish, uh, and that would be passed around, and this would be the second dipping. Uh, then they would eat the roasted lamb. Uh, after that, they would sing parts of Psalm 115 to 118. In the middle of that, they would drink the third cup of wine. Uh, then they would finish singing Psalms 118 to 118. Then they would drink the fourth cup of wine, uh, and they would end the night with a hymn. Right? Now it is during that second dipping of the bread that verses 20 to 25 take place. So it's like the middle, or the, more towards the, the first half of this, of this meal. Uh, and, and what will also be helpful here is to know how they sat. Right? How they sat and how they ate. Because they didn't sit in chairs like we sit in chairs. Uh, and they didn't sit at a, a kind of a rectangular table like we sit at rectangular tables at all. So what you know from Leonardo da Vinci's uh, Last Supper... That's no good. That is not what it looked like. Leonardo was a very gifted man, maybe a, a crazy man in some ways, uh, but certainly a great artist, but he didn't have it right. They didn't sit like that. They didn't sit like that. They sat at a U-shaped table, like a U, a U-shaped table. Uh, and, and, and the actual table part was only like 12 inches off the ground, so it was low. Uh, and, and they sat, or semi-laid on the floor, on their left hip, leaning on their left elbow. All right, got the picture so far, so they kind of lounged out like that. And they would use their right hand to take the food. 
So they're leaning like this, they're out like that, and they would sort of all be lined up like that, and they, and they, would, they would use their right hand to take the food. So they didn't have utensils, all right? They didn't use utensils like we do. And in some cultures, actually, they still eat with, with their right hand, without utensils. Now the host, or in this case Jesus, sat at the second to last seat at the right hand of the U. So this is important now to get this. So you got the U, all right? Here's the right side of the U. Not the last seat, but the second to last seat. That's where the host sat. That's where Jesus was. Uh, and that was his seat. Uh, and, 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 and the seat to the left of the host would be the third seat. That was the seat of honor. That was the seat of honor. Uh, and the seat to the right of the host, uh, which would be the, the end of it all, that was the seat for the close friend. Close friend, host, guest of honor. All right, you got all of that? That's all happening on the right-hand side here. And we know, we know where some of the apostles were sitting from John's Gospel. We know a couple of these, these places here. Right? We know that, that John was on Jesus' right hand or at the end of the table because John 13, 26 says he leaned on his bosom and there's no way he could lean on his chest unless he was sitting to his right. So he was at the last seat. We also know that Peter was sitting across from him, whether he's on, the, he's on the left side, either the last or the second to last, but he's somewhere over there, because we know from John 13, 24, that he motions to John to find out who the traitor is. So he has to be somebody pretty close on eyesight to him. And we know that Judas had to be on Jesus' left side or the seat of honor, because we read in John 13, 26, that after Jesus dips the bread, that he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Son of Simon. Not only that, when, when, when Judas asks him the question, he very quietly answers it for him. So he's got to be extremely close to him. So John sat at the one end of the table. Jesus sat next to him. Judas sat next to Jesus. Peter sat on the other end of the table. Right? And, and, and as they're into the second dipping of the bread, in the middle of that, Jesus drops the bombshell. And, and, and the bombshell is, he says, assuredly, which means, take it to the bank, absolutely going to happen, assuredly, one of you will betray me. Boom! Shock! Boom! They are the twelve closest disciples to Jesus. They have been with him through thick and thin. When others abandoned Jesus, they stayed the course. These guys left homes and jobs and friends and families to follow Jesus. And now, he unloads this chilling prediction on them. And I'm sure it really shook them to their cores. One of you will betray me. In Mark, 8, in Mark 14, 18, he says it this way, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And listen, every single thing that Jesus ever predicted, it came true. It always comes true. And they knew that. Go to the sea and throw your line in. And the first fish that you catch will have a coin in its mouth. And that will be enough to pay for you and I and the temple tax. Well, that's a, quite a, a prophecy right there, is it not? And it happens. Go to the village and you will see some donkeys tied up. Tell the owner that I have need and he will give them to you. Just go and say to that guy, Jesus needs them. And he'll give it. And they did. And, yes, oh, how about this? Put water in the water pots. Then, then pour them and you will have wine. And he did. And, yes, Lazarus is dead. But I am going to Bethany to raise him from the dead. So when Jesus said something, that something was going to happen. And it happened. And he told them on a number of occasions that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he was going to be beaten, arrested, and killed there, and that he would be crucified. Right? And that he would rise again three days later. And he told them just two days before, 
that, that, that he would be delivered up or betrayed to the Jewish leaders. So he has implied that someone close to him would betray him. But now, he narrows it really, really down. Right? It's not one of the 500 who see him in 1 Corinthians 15 after the resurrection. Right? It's not one of the 120 in the upper room in Acts 1. It's not even one of the 70 he sends out. No, it's one of the 12. It's one of the 12. Right? Those who he taught and discipled to be his core, his core disciples or his sent out ones. Those who he would give apostolic authority. And the church would rest on the foundation of their teaching and that of the prophets. So this is as close as it gets. This is the inner core of his followers. These are the ones who have said that they believe Jesus is the Christ. That he is the son of the living God. Right? They said that he had the words of eternal life. They claimed those things. And now he says, one of you guys will betray me. How's that possible? How's that possible? They love him. They have left everything for him. It's like the couple that's been married for 25 years. Seems like everything is going good, does it not? And one day the husband says, I want a divorce. I want a divorce. I'm a homosexual and I'm going to be moving in with my lover. I mean, surely that wife would be utterly devastated and feel betrayed, would she not? Would she not? Or imagine, if you will, and probably this is going to be the case at some point, imagine if I preach that same-sex marriage is a sin. And you know it is. Right? Homosexuality is a sin. So imagine if I preach that, preach that and one of the officers uh, from Grace Baptist Church goes ahead and calls the intolerance police. And I get arrested. I get arrested for a hate crime. I would feel betrayed by this supposed brother and co-labor in the gospel. You know, fingering me to the intolerance police. Well, when the apostles heard this, Matthew says they were exceedingly sorrowful. That's deep, deep sorrow. That's deep grief. I mean, how could it be that one of us would do this? Listen, these guys are already a mixed bag of emotions, right? With extreme, the extreme tension between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. They're battling it out. They're battling it out all the way. In Matthew 23, Jesus hammers them with seven woe to you. You know, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. All right? And this has been going on. All right? And, and, then, and then, you know, uh, uh, you know he, he tells them that the Jewish temple is going to be destroyed and Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And on a positive note, of course, glory was to come and they would have 12 thrones in this, in this new world or this new kingdom. Right? Uh, and, 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 and then he's telling them, right, that one of you are going to betray me. One of you are going to be the cause of me being put to death. Now, one would think, in all of that, that they must have thought, it's Judas. Judas is going to do it. Judas is going to do it. One would think, from what we know in Scripture, he's a thief, he's covetous, he's certainly disillusioned, right? One would think that they would say, it's Judas, man, he's not one of us. That guy's a fake. That guy's a hypocrite. That guy is a, he's a, he's a lover of money. He's a lover of the world. One would think that. But here's the thing. They don't suspect Judas, not at all. He's the group treasurer, and I gotta tell you, that's a respected position for them. That's a respected position. 
And Jesus gave him the seat of honor at the Passover. He is sitting at Jesus' left side. That's a seat of honor. He's got it right there. So nobody suspects Judas. And I don't think they suspect anybody else anyway, except for themselves, which is why they ask him, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? And to their credit, they don't trust their own hearts because they understand to some degree what their hearts are capable of. And add to that, which we don't see here, but we see it in Luke, right? Uh, that they're still arguing even up to the Last Supper or this night. They're still arguing the apostles on who's the greatest in the kingdom. Who's going to get the closest throne? Who gets the top slot? And this has been going on since Matthew 16. They've been debating and arguing, you know, jockeying for position. And Jesus chastises them again. And yet again, he teaches them that the greatest in his kingdom is the most humble. The way up is to go down. And then he gives them a living illustration of this by washing their feet. So they've just been put in their place, so to speak. They've just been crushed of their pride. And needless to say, at this point, they don't really trust themselves. So they ask, they ask him, because they know and believe he knows who it is. They say, Lord, who is it? Is it me? Who will betray you? And Jesus answers them in verse 23, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Now listen, this is not fingering anybody at this point. There's no particular person here that he's, he's fingering here uh, as they're all dipping their food in the bread, uh, their, their bread in the, in the food. It's a way of saying, as Mark said, it's someone really close to me. Someone so close to actually eating a meal with me. That's how close this is. And again, it's to show how close the betrayer is to Jesus. Well, this is killing Peter. It's killing him. And you know, his personality is so big and bold and he can't help but like, like say something all the time. He's got to know who it is. Right? He's got to know who it is. And so we read in John 13, 24 that he motions to John and says to John, find out from Jesus who it is. He motions like, you know, he does something like that. And John, John gets it. And, and, and John asks Jesus, who is it? And Jesus answers in, in verse 26 of John 13, it is he whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And then we read in verse 27, Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him, that's Judas. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. What you do, do quickly. And verse 28 and 29 confirm that no one knew that, that John knew this. That it was Judas because they thought when Judas was going that, 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 that Judas was either buying food for the feast or he was giving money to the poor. So they don't, they don't know this. And then Jesus says to the group after that in Matthew now, back to Matthew 26, The Son of Man indeed goes the way it is written of him. But woe, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And here we see this amazing paradox of the sovereign will of God and the responsibility of man. And see, all of what's happening is God's will. God has ordained that Jesus go to the cross. God has ordained that Jesus suffer for the sins of his people. Right? God has ordained that it would take place on the Passover. Remember in the beginning of Matthew 26, the Jewish leaders, they want to wait at least 10 days to do this. And, and, and Jesus said it's going to happen in two. It's God's will it happen in two at the Passover. It has to happen at the Passover because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. So it is his will that it take place at the Passover. It is his will 
that he be betrayed and falsely accused and mocked and beaten and crucified. It is his will that he suffer this way. Jesus asked in Mark 9, he says, And how it is written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. It's been written that he suffer many things and be treated with contempt. 1 Corinthians 15.3 For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. This didn't happen in a corner. It didn't just unfold. This all happened according to the Scriptures. In Acts 17, verses 2 and 3, we read Paul as his custom was, went into them, that's the Jews, uh, and there for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating, here it is, that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. The Scriptures say so. Scriptures say so. And yet, and yet, even though the Scriptures declare the suffering of Jesus Christ, and yet at the same time, Judas is 100% responsible for his actions. Judas chose to betray Jesus. Judas chose to sin. Peter says so. In Acts 1, verses 16 to 18. I'm not going to read it now, but you can jot that down. He was responsible for what he did. He chose to lead a group of men against Jesus. He chose to do it. You see, he chose to reject Jesus as his Lord. He chose to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Yes, Psalm 22 depicts the brutality of the cross that Jesus must suffer. Yes, Isaiah 53 depicts the wrath of God that Jesus must suffer and incur for his people. But woe to that man. Woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. Woe to that man. And you know what woe means? It means judgment. Right? And, and this is talking about an eternal judgment. Because Judas is not a puppet. It's not like strings are holding him and he's like doing what he's doing. He's doing what his heart wants to do. And that's what we do, by the way. We do what our heart wants to do. Right? And he's doing exactly what his heart wants to do. And yet, a sovereign God ordains it. And yet, a sovereign God fulfills, fulfills his will through Judas's sin. Everybody is guilty for what they did at the cross. You understand that? The Jewish leaders were guilty. The Jewish people who said, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate, the Romans, they're all guilty. Judas is guilty for betraying him. But you've got to understand it was God's will to go. And God is using all of this sin, all of this evil to fulfill his plan. Plan of redemption. To fulfill his purpose. And it's a great mystery. But let us remember this, that God is never the author of sin, nor does he tempt anyone to sin. Thus, our sin is our sin, and we must answer for it. People have a hard time with that. They have a hard time with a sovereign God and us, men, who are responsible for our sin that we commit. Yet they're both true. Well, Jesus says, Woe to that man. It would have been better if he were never born. It would have been better if he were never born. You know what he's saying? It would have been better if Judas never existed. And why is that? Why would it have been better if he never existed? Because he will receive the greatest condemnation hell has to offer. He will receive the greatest condemnation hell has to offer. Listen, there's a biblical principle here. And here it is. The more light you have, the more responsible you are. The more light you have, the more responsible you are. So if you hear the gospel over and over and over again, and have many spiritual blessings and advantages, and you still reject the gospel, your hell will be worse than the person who never heard it. Everybody, everybody is responsible before God. Everybody. Whether you've heard it or not, 
Creation itself declares there's a God. All men know. All men know there's a God and they all know they're accountable to Him. But those who get special revelation, those who hear the truth of the Gospel, they've gotten more light. And to reject that light, to, re- to walk away from that light, it's worse. It's worse. And that's what Jesus said. And that's, that's what I had, that's what I had, I had uh, Josh read. You see, the hell is worse. Because there are degrees or levels or punishments, if you will, uh, of hell. And, and that's what Jesus was saying in Matthew 11. Woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Those are cities he's doing work in. Those are cities he's sharing the gospel in. Those are cities that he's doing miracle upon miracle in. He's doing it. He said, for if the mighty works uh, which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, that's Old Testament time, those are heathen cities that were destroyed, if they were done there, guess what? They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, if those Old Testament cities that I've destroyed because of their sin, but if, but if I would have given them what I gave you, if I would have given them the, the gospel, if I would have given them the miracles to authenticate the Messiah and the ministry of, of, of the Messiah for atoning for sinners, if they had had that, I'm telling you, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes and they'd be around today. Even Sodom, as he says later on. You see, you have a lot of light and you reject it. They are no light. They're responsible for their sin, but you're more responsible because you had more light. And listen, Nobody had more light than Judas. Nobody had more light than Judas. He heard the gospel over and over again by the greatest preacher who ever lived. And he saw countless demonstrations of Jesus' messiahship over and over and over again. Right? And, and in the end, he rejected all of it and he went against Christ. Therefore, his hell will be worse than, than anyone else's hell. Even though everyone's hell is going to be tortured. It's not like hell is okay for some and bad for others. It's miserable for everybody, but somehow, some way, there's a degree of misery there. And let me say this. This principle, because we're sitting here listening to this, this principle ought to make everybody in this room make real sure that you are a wheat and not a tear. And it ought to make us, you know, make real sure that we are a sheep and not a goat. Because if you are not a, a wheat, and if you're not a sheep, then your hell will be worse than the person who's never professed Jesus at all. Right? Most people sitting here are going to say, I'm a Christian or I like Jesus and I like the gospel and I believe in him. Well, you better make real sure that you really do. Because if you don't really believe him, if you haven't really surrendered to him, if you're not really born again, if you're not really one of his, then you need to know it's going to be worse for you than some guy in some little nook of the world who's never heard of Jesus. Because you have all this light that the truth laid out before you. Children growing up in a Christian home. Your parents can't make you Christian. They teach you Christian things. They pray for you. They example for you the gospel. But there's no rub off because your parents are Christian. You understand that. Whereas Tim Liverpool says, who's not here today, God has no grandchildren. Alright? So the point is that, that just because your parents are Christian or grandmas are Christian or uncle so-and-so is a Christian... You still need to be saved. You still need to repent of your sins and believe. You have the great blessing and advantage of parents who who love the Lord and love you and are telling you those things. That's a wonderful advantage. And listen, you know, he says in Malachi that God hates divorce. Why? Because he desires godly offspring. It is often his good pleasure to save families and people in families and praise them for it. 
but you still need to be saved. And you're getting a lot of light. Well, after Jesus gives his riveting warning, Judas replies, I have sinned against you, Lord. Please forgive me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm the one, Lord. I did it. I sold you out to the chief priest and the Sanhedrin. I did it, Lord. Please forgive me for this great evil. Oh, can you forgive me, Lord Jesus? Does he say that? Does he say that as he's looking right at Jesus? As Jesus hands him the bread? Does he say that? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. But here's the thing. If he did say that, even like in the fourth quarter with like two minutes left, if he did say that, Jesus would have forgiven him. Jesus would have forgiven him. But Judas' heart is still rock hard. Even though Judas annou- Jesus announces the judgment which will come upon him. And in the midst of that, what does he say? He says, Rabbi, get that first word, Rabbi. Rabbi, is it I? You see, the other 11, what do they say? Lord, Lord, is it I? But, but Judas can't, come, can't bring himself to say that. He says, Rabbi, teacher, teacher. And that's because Jesus is not his Lord. Now the question is, why does he ask it? Like it's kind of crazy if you think about it. Why ask what you know you're going to do anyway? Right? Why ask him that? And, 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 and I'm sure that he could probably feel the 30 pieces of silver like clinging around in his, in his pocket or something like that. But why ask, is it I, when, when you know it's, it's, it's you? Well, here's why. Here's why. Because he's saving face among the other guys. Right? If the other guys ask, is it I, and one of the twelve doesn't ask, is it I, well, what are the other eleven going to think? It's him. Right? I mean, that's just make common sense. If the one guy's not going to ask and eleven guys are, then this guy doesn't, he's probably the guy. And so to save face among the other eleven, he does that. He asks. And how many Christian people will say Christian things uh, when they're in Christian circles that that for the purpose that people would not think they're not a Christian, so they'll say christian easy kind of things. Praise the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. I love Jesus. And they'll do that kind of stuff. And, and if it's real, great. But the sad reality is more people care about what others think about their Christianity than what Jesus thinks about their Christianity. And quite honestly, it doesn't really make a difference what you think about my Christianity, though I hope I would be real and sincere and that would be an encouragement to you. But it only makes really, it only, I only care what he thinks at the end of the day. Because he knows. I only care what he thinks. Well, Judas asks Jesus if, Jesus if he's the traitor. And Jesus says four words that should have been like a knife in his heart. He says, you have said it. In other words, yes, it's you. You're the traitor. You're the one that's going to wish you were never born. And I know all about you, Judas. I know about your meeting with the chief priest. I know about the 30 pieces of silver. I know that you love money. I know you're trying, to, you're trying to convict me right now. And I know you're disillusioned with me. And that's because you have never known me. And again, only Judas heard this as John was on the other side of Jesus. And, and I'm, guessing, I'm guessing that Jesus says this to him with compassion and love as he looks into his eyes. Because we only that this far apart. As he looks into his face and as he looks into his eyes. Right? And... and, and and sadly, Judas, probably only inches away from Jesus, looks back at him with no remorse, with no fear of God, with no shaking of the soul, 
No sorrow over betraying the Son of Man, the God-Man, the friend of sinners. And if this doesn't convince you that man is totally and utterly depraved and cannot and will not ever come to Christ on his own to be saved, I honestly don't know what will. No, 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 man's got free will. Oh, no, no, Jesus died for everybody. Now, why isn't everybody in heaven? Why doesn't everybody believe? Why? Can't. The nature will not allow it. Nobody had more information. Nobody saw more miracles. Nobody heard more truth. Nobody looked into the, to the king of glory, into his eyes, heard him preach. Jesus loved them. I don't think Jesus was mad and angry. Judas, you're going to get... No, Judas, uh, you know? I think in love, he said, you said it. You said it. Man can't muster it up. God has got to work first. But even now, the door of grace and the door of mercy is still open for Judas. Even now, he can weep over his sins, embrace Christ with tears of sorrow, and he would find a willing Savior. Jesus has exposed him. He's exposed him to bring him to a place where he recognizes his sin and repents of his sin. Like the woman at the well in John 4, right? Jesus said, well, go, go and tell your husband. Go, go get your husband. Call your husband and come here. And she says, well, I have no husband. And Jesus says, well, you have said, well, you have no husband because quite honestly, you've had five husbands and the guy you're shacking up with now, he's not even your husband. Yeah? You see what he's doing? He's exposing her sin. Before she could ever come to the, to the knowledge of truth, she needs to know that she's evil and wicked on the inside. She needs to know that she's a sinner. He exposes her sin. It's like the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus. You remember this. And, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus knows he's got two big problems. He knows that he's self-righteous and he knows he loves money. And so he gives him the law to show him that he doesn't keep the law, but that he thinks he does. And then he says, well, you lack one more thing then if you really want eternal life. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have, have joy in heaven and follow me. He's exposing him. It's like a knife cutting him open saying, here's what you are, my friend. You are a covetous you know, lover of the world and self-righteous individual, and you need to know that's what you are. And when you know that, you'll be in a good position to now look at me and follow me. You need to know it. You need to be exposed. That's what we do when we preach the gospel. But like a surgeon opening up, a, opening up something and saying, take a look. Look what's inside. It's not good. It's bad. But look what you have in there. You got cancer. It's called sin cancer. You got that. That's what we do when we preach the gospel and share the gospel with people. So it's an exposure. So before Jesus can save us from our sins, he's got to expose us to our sins. And that's what he's doing with Judas. Right? Judas, you're all about... You're all about the money. You're about to commit the most horrendous crime in the history of the world. And you're going to do it because your heart is bad, because you love money, because you love the world, and you don't love me. So therefore, turn, repent, embrace me, and I will forgive you. And I'll get to the cross another way, but I'll get there, Judas, and guess what? I'll even be going for you as well. I don't want to just be going for the other 11. I'll be going for you too. So even at the last minute, even at the last minute, the door of salvation is still open for Judas, but it is closing, and it is closing real quick. And sadly, we know the story, he walks away. He walks away. Which means that he will wish, and even does now in hell, that he was never born. He wishes that. Well, in closing, let me remind you of what a wonderful, merciful Savior we have. 
Right? He brings those who are his people, uh, um, uh, those whom he has called and saved to sit and to dine with him, so to speak. And he has intimate fellowship with them. And like the eleven apostles, he cares for us and he protects us and he nurtures us. And, and that's because he loves us. And like the eleven apostles, we are weak. Right? We are confused at times. We are prideful. We, we, don't, we don't always trust ourselves because we know the capacity and capabilities that live within our own heart. We know that. But He willingly and lovingly went to be our Passover lamb. And He made sure that, that, that His blood thoroughly covered over us and protects us from the judgment to come. Assuring us that we will never stand before Him as our judge, but only as our Lord and our Savior and our friend and as our Good Shepherd. That's how we're standing, brothers and sisters. We're standing as one of His. So we can have sweet communion with Him now and so much sweeter communion in the life to come. And for those who don't truly know Him, who have never been born again, you need to know that the door of mercy and grace is still open. But it is closing quickly. And the Lord Jesus is reaching out to you today through the preaching of His Gospel. And He is telling you the consequences of sins unforgiven, of a life of rejecting Him. And I strongly believe this. I strongly believe that anyone who ends up in hell and all who are there now, they absolutely wish they were never born. They, they wish they were never born. Because quite honestly, what's 50, 60, 70, 80 years of having a good life, doing things that please you, what good is that? I mean, at the end of the day, everybody who is dead already, and I live by like 18 cemeteries, and I just look at the sea of, of, of gravesides, but, but those who didn't trust in Jesus, today they're in hell. And it doesn't make a difference how much money they made, how good their life was, how much power they had, the prestige that men gave them. All of that means nothing, and they probably wish they were never born. But if your heart is open to the Word of God, and your life of sin has been exposed to you, then I say, as the Gospel says, turn from your sin. Turn from your sin. Right? Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ. Lean on Him. Right? Because the door is still open. Christ is still willing to save sinners and to cover you with His blood. But you must come to Him on His terms. And that is empty of self and trusting in Him. Amen? Let's pray. Our God and Father, we just thank You, Lord, that You are so gracious and kind and loving that Christ came to save sinners and any one of us, Lord, who would come to Him, He was saved and saved to the uttermost. Lord, I pray that those who know You, Lord, that we would live with zeal and gusto and fervor for You. Lord, that we would forsake sin. Lord, that we would live hard for You all the days that you give us here. And Lord, for those who don't, Lord, that you would really convict them of sin. And Lord, I also pray for the offering that we will now receive. Uh, Lord, you don't need money, but Lord, you want us to trust you and you want us to give cheerfully and joyfully and sacrificially. And I pray that we would do just that, Lord, to uh, Lord, support this local ministry and Lord, and the influence that you have given us in this uh, little neck of the woods. And Lord, I pray that we would, we would do so with, uh, with great gladness. And Lord, I pray that you would use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.